This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 11th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It's just 10 days until the great American eclipse. And you were told the great American eclipse is when China passes the U.S. in trade or when foolish open border policies leave us overrun, literally overrun in some cases. No, no. It's an actual eclipse and W-O-W-T, NBC News Channel 6 Omaha has the story. We've learned local eye doctors are concerned about an influx of patients with permanent eye damage who might disregard warnings about looking directly into the sun. Therefore, local radio stations will be playing this snippet of a Manfred Mann song on a loop for the next 10 days. Okay, okay, that's enough. And yeah, I, I, I know it wasn't written by man for man. But don't worry. As WOWT will tell you, there is a way to safely view this once-in-a-generation astronomical spectacle. You'll find Eclipse glasses for sale online and in stores, but be warned, there are fakes out there. The American Astronomical Society has a list of retail chains where NASA-approved safety glasses are for sale. That list includes 7-Eleven, Best Buy, Casey's General Store, Hobbytown, Lowe's, and Walmart. In other words, stores, all the stores. Well, not Retina Reggie's special eclipse specs by the highway. Don't get your glasses there. Or if you're a tractor trailer with a wide load, and I know you are a good buddy, don't go anywhere near the highway, either at Retina Reggie's or not during the eclipse, because shadows increase, darkness ensues. No, that's not why. The state of Nebraska has decided to institute a ban on all trucks carrying extra-wide loads. And that's understandable. The eclipse takes, you know, a minute, minute and a half, so while it passes by, no big trucks, I get that. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> that's not the duration of the ban. The oversized load ban begins sundown Friday, August 18th, and ends sunrise on Tuesday, August 22nd. Loads with oversized dimensions requiring a permit will need to find another route avoiding the Cornhusker State. Four days. Four-day ban for a less than two-minute event. Okay, a couple hours if you include the penumbra. You always got to include the penumbra. I say it's crazy to avoid I-80. Have you seen a map? Have you seen a map, 3 News Now? Omaha News 6 on your side? Nebraska is somewhat central to the United States. The idea is, and this is why they're instituting this rather long ban, in my opinion, is that so many people will want to flock to Nebraska 
to see the eclipse that the roads will become clogged. They'll want to get there apparently three days beforehand, maybe stay another 24 hours. For this two-minute eclipse, tells you something about competing entertainment options this time of year. Emoji movie not doing it for you? Drive two states away to see an eclipse for a minute and a half. But no trucks. No trucks will be there to get in your way. Even though there are six lanes between Omaha and Lincoln. You know, I'm talking to 370 interchange near Omaha and US 77 South interchange on Lincoln's western outskirts, of course. Okay, two minutes of action. I understand. Uh, Tourists flock to Louisville for the Kentucky Derby, but I check. They don't close the state highways for those two minutes of action. Other states are restricting travel to Wyoming. Not for as long, but come on, it's Wyoming. And Missouri is also, which I have you know, August 21st is also the final day of the state fair. And yet, even Missouri's not going to close the highways to wide loads for as long as the ban in Nebraska. Come on, Nebraska. Think about the eclipse overreaction and come back down to earth. On the show today, I spiel about cynicism as defense mechanism and why that's given rise to fake news. But first, comedian Brant Tobler. What a life. Born in Wyoming, the aforementioned Wyoming, had several brushes with the law, had a deadbeat dad whose brushes with the law saw him swept into jail and swept out of his life for a while. Then dad tried to rip off son and son planned dad's execution. Yeah, same old, same old. Brant was also a runner in Las Vegas, which meant he placed bets for a gambling syndicate. And now he's a comedian. Most of his material is about noticing that the count in the sock drawer is off. No, it's about all the stuff I mentioned. As you will hear, here's Brand Tobler. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Brent Tobler's done it all. He ran a mafia ring out of a mall. He plotted to kill his dad. He was arrested for causing a roulette-related riot. Squatted in Mike Tyson's house. It's all in the book, Free Roll, and in much of his stand-up routine. Hello, Brant. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm well. How many times have you been arrested? Uh, four or five, probably. <laughs> and how is that? Does that include detentions that didn't result in arrest, like that roulette-related yeah. uh, incident? Well, the Vegas ones, I would get arrested a lot, but you would just go to casino jail, and then they would just come and uh, and then they'd eighty-six you from the property, and then you would. I'd never had to actually go to jail, jail till the last time, which was bad for me because then I realized there was no real repercussions because the first time I got in big trouble was the the time that. You kind of mentioned I, I threw a roulette ball at a pit boss, mm-hmm. and I got arrested. But then when the police gave me my ticket, they told me I didn't have to worry about the ticket because the police – because they weren't going to show up for court. And then the casino wouldn't pay all the people to take a day off from work and go to court. So I was fine. So after I dodged that bullet, I, I figured I was pretty uh, – I was pretty unstoppable. So then over the next couple of years, I got kicked out of a bunch more casinos. And then eventually they did take me to jail. And then the casino – 
I got out of jail and I went to the casino like, I'm one of your biggest gamblers. Why would you arrest me? And they sent a letter to the judge saying it was a mistake. They didn't want me arrested. Whoa. And the judge said, uh, we don't care. Looking at his record, he obviously has anger management. And uh, they didn't. the judge didn't care at all. I had to take anger management classes. So how many – let's go through a couple of these. Uh, I, I would guess that most people don't know about casino jail and even casino security. So what's that mean and you know, how did you react to that the first couple times before you met the real Metro police? Yeah. Well, the casino, you know, it's just dumb security guards that take their jobs way too seriously. So they would always – try to arrest me in the casino and then you casino jail is just like a nice room leather couches and stuff a lot nicer than a lot of the hotel rooms that i stayed in at the time and uh so then they come and they put on a big show for everybody then the police come and they're usually just annoyed by it because they you know in in vegas metro police have real stuff to do so if i get drunk and talk trash to a blackjack dealer or something uh when the cops come there they're so annoyed by the whole process of it so at the time I was a runner, so I was gambling so much that also when I got uh, in trouble with security guards, the casino, the higher ups would be like, quit messing with this kid. He gambles so much. We need him. Right. So what a runner is, you were the kind of face man for a syndicate who was placing bets. And if these big gamblers go in and place bets, the casino might not accept it. So they hire people like you to place smaller bets, essentially doing their bidding. That's, that's, am I getting yeah. that about right? Yeah. And they, and they worked out of an office. So they were betting a lot online mm-hmm. and they were older guys. I mean, th- so there was a lot, not a lot, but there was maybe 10 runners on the street at the time. So our team was a lot of younger guys because we were we would run up the escalator the wrong way or do whatever we had to do to try to get the numbers where my bosses were like millionaire older guys and they they had no interest or interest in running up and down the hot vegas strip so it was a, it was a younger man's job so and i would just carry hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cash and, and run from casino to casino uh going where they told me to go bet you're betting for these guys that was legal it might have been against the casino's interest or policy but just executing these bets that in and of itself was that legal yeah i mean it was one of those rules where the main thing they didn't want was the phones in there. That's why I'd get in all, all kinds of trouble because we had it back then it was the Nextels that would just beep mm-hmm. and then they would, it would just beep and they'd say, go bet the New York Giants at the Venetian and I'd run and do that. But it was one of those things where it was like, I think technically it might've been illegal, but no one really cared because in the end I was helping the casinos too, because I only had a certain limit. Let's say I had I could bet, let's say, $20,000 at the Mirage, mm-hmm. but you could come in and pretend like you're a drunk tourist and they would let you bet 200000 So it was a way for them to kind of monitor what was going on because back then, this was before Twitter and social media was so big, a lot of times we would get the information maybe five, ten minutes before it became national. So then I would run in and I'd say, let's say Eli Manning's out, I would bet against the Giants. And then I'd pull the guy to the side and say, hey, you might want to watch that game. Uh, we don't think Eli's playing. And they would say, okay, thanks. So they they gave up a $20,000 bet they were not thrilled about, right. but that kind of protected them from the next 10 minutes of people hitting them all over the place. You were there early so we warning together. system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we kind so of worked together. I want to just, but the, the this syndicate's edge wasn't some advanced algorithm. It was just that they got, say, injury reports earlier than the mass public and then the casinos, and the, they just acted a little quicker on information than casinos did to set the lines. Was that what this uh, syndicate? No, no. Back then, it, there was an algorithm uh, 
we had guys that like we had a hockey guy that was good, and we they had a the, the guys I worked for in the end had a simulation thing where they would simulate the game like ten million times, and it would shoot out a number. Right. It, it, it was it, it was helpful, but not as helpful as getting some you know if someone got arrested or something. Those were the big days when we found out. You know, for instance, one of the biggest days we ever had is when we found out that they pre-taped the national anthem for the Super Bowl. Yeah. So a, a Hollywood agent told us that we had to trust that he wasn't lying to us. But and in in, in instances like that, hence the name of free roll of my book. The agent had a, like a ten percent free roll, so ten percent of whatever we bet, if it won, he got that. So that's why people were inclined to like if you were my friend back then, you would go to a Yankee game an hour early. And your girlfriend or wife or whatever or whoever you went with would be like, why do we have to go so early? But if, if by chance something happened, it could be worth five or ten thousand dollars to you. So yeah, and the and the uh, anthem people would bet on the anthem. There was a prop bet. Yeah, on yeah. The so you bet on the, the national anthem. Yeah, yeah. So that one was like uh, that. That was like a big one, but it was just a lot of trust. Trust that this guy was uh, wasn't lying. <laughs> yeah, free money. So did any? So we didn't. I mean, it's a great story in the book. In uh, the the roulette riot. In fact, it was so great a story. Isn't that part of the reason the police let you go? That you you told them yeah. the story in an entertaining way. Yeah. So yeah, in the end, the police officer said, "I've been doing this job seventeen years, and that's the best story I've ever heard." And in a nutshell, just tell us uh, what what transpired there with that uh, roulette-related riot. I was playing roulette, and um, I was winning. I bought in for $100. After like 45 minutes, I was up $1,800. And I turned to my buddy with me, and I'm like, holy shit, this is the best night of my life. And right when I said that, the pit boss came over, and he was like, you can't be talking like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you can't be saying shit in my casino. And I was like, it's like two in the morning, man. There's people doing blow and hookers and drinking. I can't say shit. He said, you say shit one more time, you're out of here. So then like a smart ass, I was like, okay, that's fair. But since you just said shit too, if you say it one more time, you're out of here. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't think it was that funny as you did. And then he called the security guards over. So then five security guards came over and uh, they started harassing me about it. And then, you know, I was giving them shit back. And then they, uh, so then they called the Sarge. So then the sergeant came over with five more security guards. So we had 10, 10 uh, security guards and a sergeant. They took my Wyoming ID and they gave it to the sergeant. And then he looked at it and he came back and he was like, uh, where are you from, boy? And I was like, I'm from Wyoming, sir. And then he said to me, uh, I don't know how you talk to your little sheep girlfriend in Wyoming, but you're not going to say shit in front of women in my casino. And all the security guards laughed. And I was like, you know what, sir? Uh, I don't like to curse in front of women, but I do know a group of women that curses every single morning. It's your mother's when they wake up and go, my son is a 47-year-old security guard in Las Vegas. Shit. And uh, when I said that, he didn't like that too much. And he said, all right, smartass, you know, take your chips and, and get out of here. But at that point, there was a big-ass crowd had formed. And I was like, all right, man, it's showtime. And then I walked back over the roulette table and the pit boss that started the whole thing was just kind of staring at me. Like he beat me and uh, I was like, nah, I'm not done just yet. And I walked back over the roulette table and I got to the table and there's like $100,000 in chips in front of the wheel. And I reached in, I was like, I don't want this money. And I stopped the wheel and I pulled a, pulled the roulette ball out in the middle of the casino. Just, and I just guess like, it's like when you're not a little- done. It's like- Yeah. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> a little kid, I was like, well, if I can't play, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And then as I was holding this little white marble, I was like, I don't want this thing. And uh, I saw him looking at me all confused. And then I- uh, just reared back and I threw that roulette ball as hard as I could at the pit boss and hit him right in the chest. And uh, this one, it gets pretty blurry because all those fat ass security guards tackle me in the middle of the casino. And uh, 
chipped my tooth. My watch broke. Uh, we wrestled around for like 45 seconds. Somehow I lost a flip-flop. And they uh, zip-tied me up in the middle of the casino. Then they took me up to casino jail. Then there'd always be hookers in there that they that they got. And then the hookers were like giving me life advice. So I was like, I'm pretty good on that. I don't <laughs> I don't need any advice from you guys about what I need to do. You know, I'm just a drunk. At the time, I was like, you know, all these stories. Looking back, I was just a dumb young kid that was drunk and then and very douchey and like not as an adult now. I was like, I yeah, don't I know why I didn't want to say anything, like Brant, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, trust me, I know. Yeah, <laughs> but I at the time you got to understand, I was twenty two, twenty three. It, it's not something I'm proud of now. But and you'd been. I mean, it was fun at the time. <laughs> the, the whole book, the whole book is a testament to this. But you'd been through a lot. Yeah, yeah. I was a kid that came from a small town in Wyoming that maybe had eight hundred dollars to my name. To the next thing you know, I'm carrying a hundred thousands of dollars. You know, it was. Uh, it was part of the journey. <laughs> other, other than the roulette ball riot, were you arrested for job-related reasons or just getting into fights? No, and, no. just being a, a dumb young kid. And then once I knew that there was no real repercussions, then, you know, the security guards want to come over five or six deep and they want to always put on a show like they're big tough guys. So then I was like, and this was probably before I wanted to be a comedian. And uh, so then I was like, well, it's showtime. And then I would put on a show. It was just dumb, young, drunk stuff. <laughs> if you had uh, responsibly kept the money that you earned, so I know you were carrying hundreds of thousands, but whatever your cut was, and which of course seems impossible given the lifestyle, but let's say somehow you had the gene to squirrel away as much of your uh, <laughs> fortune as you could, how much do you think you would have made over the uh, couple man, years you were a runner? You know, and it's a question I've thought about a million times because later in life when I became a comedian and you're just so broke the first 10 years of comedy. And I, I mean, I used to have 80,000 just under my bed, like it was nothing. So it just seemed like it would never stop. It, there was just so many ways to make money. So I don't know, I could have saved 400, 500,000 probably. Do you think there'll come a time in comedy when you'll have that asset and then you could say, okay, I'm even? Yeah. Well, I mean, the beauty of it is that yeah, I blew all that money, but I mean, I did everything I've ever wanted to do. I mean, I would fly, I'd fly to Barcelona for the weekend to see my girlfriend or, or take her to Paris on Valentine's Day. Sometimes we just wake up and I would be like, I've never seen James Taylor, but we'd fly to Nashville and see James Taylor. And if I would have saved that money, I probably wouldn't have got to the point where I am. There'd be no book. I'd be like a responsible guy with a house or whatever. But I think the journey is what separates me in, in Los Angeles because in Los Angeles, I'm just another six foot chubby white guy with a beard that's not nearly as good looking as everyone else. So I'm actually very <laughs> thankful for my story and I've come to embrace it because it, it's definitely what separates me from uh, no, no one has a story like mine. What do you think either about you, about your personality, or maybe there were some small graces or silver linings in uh, your circumstances growing up? What made you be who you are instead of a victim, which I think most people, if you just sketch out the facts of your uh, upbringing, would say, well, there's very little chance a kid can escape that. Yeah, well, I mean, the the one great decision I made was to never do drugs. And uh, that was because I did the dare, the D.A.R.E. program, which is funny because back then your D.A.R.E. officer would try to scare you more than give you like knowledge. And he would say, if you do drugs you're going to die or end up in prison. And since my dad was in prison and my mom was doing drugs, I always thought my mom was going to die, even though she was just smoking weed when I was in junior high. But I think that decision to never do a drug was definitely a, 
and and I was lucky to I come from a town full of amazing people, so everyone knew my dad. So uh, I had great teachers and coaches, and I had a great stepdad. My friends' parents. Uh, I think a lot of people knew my situation, and uh, so th- you know they took care of me. By the way, did you have to vet the book through lawyers and consult statutes of limitations? No, and stuff? not really. I mean, I changed a lot of names just out of respect for the people you know that were part they were part of my journey but maybe they and I, I didn't really air out a lot of dirty laundry on people but i was like i'm gonna write my book and uh it's my stories and i'm gonna tell them so how many casinos are you still banned from uh 14 15 but it doesn't matter you can just walk right in them i mean i've <laughs> taken the picture and done all that but they don't care it's all show and it's like you know it's all money driven they just want your money so they'll kick you out for the night but they're, they're not kicking out anybody that's going to come in there and drop any money. The only wouldn't, people that will kick out permanently are like homeless people. Wouldn't it be great to play one of those casinos? Oh, I played them all. Oh, you I do? Just, I did the, MG, I did the MGM uh, two weeks ago. And you know what's a great story? <laughs> to to kind of show that I'm not the awful person I portrayed in the beginning is uh, I do the roulette story on stage. I usually close with it at, at Brad Garrett's club at the MGM. And, and they have a – when Brad's there, they have two security guards in the room uh, that uh, – to make sure nothing happens with Brad. And uh, so I always close with it and I, and I make fun of security guards and they love it. They love it the most. They, 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 know, they know what I'm talking about. They have bigger problems to worry about than a drunk kid that mouthed off to a dealer through a roulette ball or something. Even though I'd, I'd love to have that – if I could have that video of that roulette ball, it would be incredible. <laughs> uh, Brad Tobler's new book is Free Roll. His comedy is uh, everywhere, including places he's technically banned. Thank you, Brent. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, man. I enjoyed talking to you. And now the spiel. I was listening to Deep State Radio. It is a breakaway defiant offshoot of the editor's roundtable from Foreign Policy. Dave Rothkopf, formerly of Foreign Policy, took the roundtable with him, rolled it down the street, reassembled the crew, and now they talk about foreign policy unfettered by the man. Except this one man, his name is Donald Trump, and they're pretty upset about that guy. Anyway, Rosa Brooks, regular panelist Rosa Brooks, Georgetown Law Professor, Obama-era Pentagon employee, was talking. She was asked by Rothkoff if during the Trump era, all that matters is that administration officials are entertaining. So they're given airtime, and there's just no accountability. And here's Rosa Brooks' answer. In fall, it's about fake news. I think it is becoming the new normal, and I, I think... It's an interesting question whether some of the things that we like best uh, have helped to make it so. And I'm, I'm talking about things like Saturday Night Live and John Oliver and David Letterman before him and and all of the various very, very funny fake news, John Stewart, Colbert, et cetera. I, you know, I sometimes wonder, um, and I'm going to use a term that I know our listeners love, um, that we are once again being hoisted on our own petard. And there's actually been some studies that suggest that younger Americans, um, the good news is that they are very, very savvy and sophisticated 
uh, viewers and listeners when it comes to the news and advertisements and so on, that they're they're very good at smoking out bullshit and at decoding messages and advertisement and in being kind of cynical about ulterior no- motives for what politicians say and what ads say and what the media does, but that they're so good at it that they have sort of lost any sense that there's necessarily a uh, any place there for truth or for idealism or real policy differences anymore. And and, and I sometimes wonder if, if we haven't, by training, we haven't trained, trained Americans to be so sophisticated and so cynical about everything that comes to them through the media uh, that we don't have anything left except entertaining each other. And this sparked in me an insight or a realization or really more a memory. For years, we were told not to blindly follow authority. We were warned against the idea of just swallowing what the gatekeepers gave you. And we were encouraged to seek out what the gatekeepers kept away. And there were media literacy movements. I remember in 2001, I covered such an effort. It was a summer camp in Connecticut. It was for kids. It was called Media Mania. I mean, you haven't lived until you've seen Noam Chomsky attempt to capture the flag. But seriously, the Media Mania summer camp, the Media Mania literacy summer camp, it was noble efforts. It was weird and interesting, therefore news. But even to my mind at the time, it just seemed a little off. I'm going to play me from back then. I sound a little different. goes on for about, I don't know, two minutes. Back in the classroom in Connecticut, Diane Samples teaches the Media Mania campers about the pernicious effects of tobacco advertising. The tobacco company thought men won't smoke a cigarette that's marketed only to women. But women will smoke a cigarette that's marketed to men. So they Speaking of media manipulation, this isn't an actual lesson. It's a restaging of the previous day's lesson for the benefit of a U.S. News and World Report photographer who wants to shoot in good light. That's his camera you hear. Okay, this is Virginia Slims and Michaela If nothing else, Samples is able to draw upon her background in corporate PR to get press attention for the program. She also has the kids' attention. Congratulations. How you feel? I got a <laughs> Clips from Forrest Gump and a display of the Time magazine cover that darkened OJ's mugshot serve as examples in a lesson on digitally altered images. It seems this group of mini McLuhan's may be learning their lesson too well. I asked a group how many photos in, say, the New York Times were digitally altered. The lowest estimate I got was half. Half of all photographs in the New York Times were faked. A week after the program ended, I called camper Michaela Walsh and asked her again about the prevalence of digitally altered photographs. Well, I think it goes on a lot because they can change basically anything with computers and technology. So I think most pictures that we look at in magazines or newspapers are digitally changed. Now, perhaps you're saying, oh, who's being naive now, Mike? But no, no, I'm telling you, the images in the New York Times, half the images, not altered. Most of what you heard, most of what you saw, even back in 2001, wasn't a manipulation. But it is and was so hard to gauge exactly what percentage is. And it's hard to offer a defense of some of this manipulation with concepts like, Well, let some parts in, but keep some parts out. Be alert. Definitely be alert, but also be trusting when warranted. Know that the media can do this, but realize they don't or don't always. Or some do, but they're trying not to, and some are trying to do it more. 
The tools of media literacy are blunt, like shovels and pals, but we really need tweezers and petri dishes. This was back in 2001, when the internet ran on dial-up and Fox News had yet to be weaponized, when Breitbart was just a guy who was listening to Rush Limbaugh and writing fan mail of Matt Drudge. So it's only natural that in the name of media literacy, what we do is we erect broad defenses, like a general disbelief in one side of the argument or a general belief of the other. And what we allow in and what we reject is less defined by a careful application of a filtration process. And it's more defined by what tribe we're in or what echo chamber we're living inside. Think about it. The acolytes of Infowars, they do not think they're naive. They think the rest of us are naive. Truth feed fans, they don't think they need media literacy. They're sure the rest of us do. We both think the other side is naive, when in fact, there are thousands of websites and bots and now political campaigns that are capitalizing on our self-styled sophistication and out of that creating whole alternative realities. Our belief that we're combating naivete is the new naivete. And as a coda, as for that young Michaela Walsh, who you heard from back in 2001, I was wondering whatever became of her. Well, you might be interested to know that she changed her name to Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And now you know the rest of the story. Except that part didn't happen. Or did it? No, seriously, it didn't. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson got this very job from Media Mania Camp. Strangely, it was advertised in the Mania subdivision. Chris Brube, just producer, is scrambling to rebook his trip to the Missouri State Fair. There's nothing you could say to Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, that he won't interpret as less than a total eclipse of the heart. The gist fighting against wide load shaming since 2017. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.